0: Brothers and sisters, the title of my sermon this morning is Highway 20, A Look at the Book. Highway 20, A Look at the Book. If you didn't know, Highway 20, or the U.S. Route 20, is an east-west road in our country that stretches from the Pacific Northwest in Oregon all the way in the east to New England. This is the longest road in the country. If you look up here, you'll see... It spans uh, 3,365 miles, it goes through 12 states, and it gives travelers and tourists a lot of pit stops along the way to see. We have a handful of other long roads in the country, and you can Google and look at those, but perhaps the most iconic for many, especially Gen Yers and and those under the Gen Y, is Route 66. I specify Gen Y and Younger because this is the highway, Route 66, that served as the inspiration for Radiator Springs that fictional setting of the Disney Pixar franchise, uh, Cars. And and uh, you know, my, my youngest son in particular loves, little Obi loves Route 66. And uh, you know, long story short, short, last year we managed to get uh, tickets that we otherwise couldn't afford to Disney. And you go to Disney and they got this like, you know, at the Venture Park, they got this Route 66 thing. And you know, my little son, Obi, he's five now, he goes in there and he's just like, oh my goodness, they have a ride and you can like ride in the cars. and you know, he's just, so, he's just so happy in this kind of iconic Route 66 thing. As a, as a kid, before my parents got divorced, uh, they rented a motorhome trailer and they took us on the highway. And we're in this motorhome and we're going on the highway. And we visited Grand Canyon and Mount Rushmore. And, you know, kids are really impatient creatures. So, you know, when you drive with kids in the car, they're often asking, what? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, 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 we're not, you know, how much further? Well, like you just asked that a minute ago, so it's the same answer. How much further? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And you know, you're, 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 you're little and, you know, you're impatient and concepts of time and whatever. And, you're, you know, when you get out on the road, though, part of that road trip that I remember even as a, as a little guy is just you start to see how big the world is. I lived off of Englewood Avenue in Century. And, and, and at that point, I was born in the 70s and the 80s as a little guy, like, it was a crime infested area. And and so we really didn't go out, you know. Um, my mom in particular was kind of, hey, it's not safe out there, you know. We wore helmets and knee pads in the house, you know, <laughs> we were scared of everything, like it's just, you, you don't get out much, you know. And so so going on a road trip, you're like, man, like, this place is big, America is big, and there's like different places and people and everything. So when you, when you get out and you, and you see what's out there, it's, it's just absolutely incredible. And, and, and then, you know, I hadn't left the country, you know, growing up or whatever. I was an adult when I got and crossed the border, got, got on a plane and left the country. Then you really begin to see like this, whoa, the world is really a big place. And that's what I want to do in today's message. I want to give us a Highway 20 look at the book of the Bible so that, so that you see how this thing, like, fits together. So if you'll jump in the car with me, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You're going to be doing that because it's probably be a long sermon. Sorry, but, you know, we're just going to, we're going to overview the Bible. So would you open up your Bibles and find your way to 1 Peter? As you're flipping around the Bible, it's worth noting that the Bible, though, it's one book. In fact, it's not one book. It's a library of books. There are 66 books that make up what we call the Bible, First Peter being one of them. And as you get to First Peter chapter 1, we are looking at a book that is technically not a book, it's a letter. It was written by the historic uh, Simon Peter to a church in Northwest Asia Minor that was experiencing a great deal of persecution. Uh, the document of First Peter that you have opened your Bibles to dates back to the 60s in the first century. Let's pick up at verse 22 in in 1 Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 1. Draw your eyes at verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again not of a seed which is perishable but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all his glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is a fitting passage for us to begin a message today overviewing uh, the, the Bible together jumping on the highway and taking a look at the book It's fitting because it speaks about the Bible and its power which gets us to the first point On today's outline the biblical revelation in our need Humans are in need of a powerful word from the Lord on our own We would not come to the triune God of creation on our own We would not come to know that there is one God who's father son and spirit let alone would we know anything about this God unless he revealed himself to us this is true in any relationship. You don't get to know someone just by looking at them. You, you, you can't figure out much about a person just by looking at them. You ever look at a picture of someone and then you meet them and you're like, wow, you're totally different than your picture looked or whatever. You can't get to know someone just by looking at them. You can't get to know God just by looking at the creation. We need a revelation from Him. And we need a revelation that is a powerful revelation uh, because we're, we're sinners. And as sinners, we are blinded to certain things. As sinners, we're we're deaf to certain things. And so when God speaks, we don't necessarily hear. When when God shows himself, we don't necessarily see. We we miss so much. With the new year before us, we always make a a press to the congregation like, hey, try to read through the Bible this year. And the goal of this isn't to just get through the Bible. Rather, the goal of it is to get the Bible through you and to get the God of the Bible through. Through you, at work, in you. Don't dismiss this as a mere wordplay by a preacher. The Bible really does aim to get through you. It's a powerful text. What did we just read in 1 Peter? Verse 23 describes the Bible as living and enduring. This text is alive. We have a book club at church, and we meet once a month, and we go over a book together, but we're, we're reading books that are not alive. This book is alive. It's animated. Verse 24 contrasts this book with grass. It does not fade. This is in fact a quote from the prophet Isaiah in the 40th chapter of the prophet Isaiah verse 6 through verse 8. A text that speaks of human frailty versus the certainty of God's promise of redemption using images of a hot desert's wind withering vegetation in its path. Sort of like our grass lot in the parking lot. It's sort of a sand lot, right? It's a desert. in addition to this desert imagery, Peter describes the ministry of the Word as pure milk. Milk that grows the believer. Babies are, are, are dependent on mothers for nourishment, and so too the believer is dependent on the Word of God, his pure milk. Pure milk means that it has not been mixed with anything else. The term is used in ancient business documents for the sale of unadulterated foods. It, hasn't, it doesn't have the additives and the things in it. You, Go to the store and you get something to eat or whatever, oh, you know, this tastes good. And you look at the side of the box and you're like, what did I just eat, right? There's, there's, there's not extra stuff in it, it's pure. So this year we have this schedule to it, it, it read through the Bible. And it, it's a, this is a, a diet plan of unadulterated nutrition for your soul. And in today's sermon, I want to talk to you about the, nutional, the nutritional content of this. So that as you're reading through the Bible in in the year, whether you get through the whole thing or you just get large chunks, you'll understand what what this book is about and how it all fits together. You have 1 Peter in front of you. I noted that Peter quoted Isaiah in verse 24. Now notice that in chapter 2, just after describing the Scripture as pure milk, he goes on in verse 6 to quote the Scripture again. For this is contained in Scripture, you see? Verse 6 of chapter 2. Behold, I lay in Zion, the chosen stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Right? You see, you see that text there? So he's, he's, he's quoting, Peter is, who's part of Scripture. You have Scripture quoting Scripture. As you read Peter, as you read these books in the New Testament, you see that's what they're doing. The, the so-called New Testament is quoting the so-called Old Testament. It's all, it's all one story. And so that's important for us. Moving to the next point on the outline from the... The need that we have because we're we're sinners we need god to reveal himself which is true of any relationship as covered and with that revelation we need to understand you know how how this biblical text fits together the english word bible is derived from a greek word biblion which simply means book or a roll. the name comes from biblos which denoted the papyrus plant that was used for writing on material in the ancient world biblos turns into biblia and in in latin and then latin speaking christians back in the early church plug take the church history class you'll find out more about these things Uh, this then comes into english as bible the new testament authors of the bible we roughly we have what we call the old and the new or the first testament second testament they were very concerned to quote scripture the way peter is so that you would see this is a unified text telling a unified story draw your eyes back into the text of 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 peter we're in 1st Peter. Would you turn from 1st Peter into 2nd Peter? We have two letters of Peter in the New Testament. Find your way to 2nd Peter chapter 3, please. Not only does Peter quote the Old Testament and say that it's scripture, Peter also quotes from the New Testament and says that it's scripture. Look at 2nd Peter chapter 3. Draw your eyes at verse 15. Okay, he says, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Look closely at verse 16. So verse 15, context, Peter's talking about Paul's writings. Verse 16, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of the things in which some are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Okay, I show this to you because we saw earlier in 1 Peter, Peter's quoting Isaiah, he's quoting the Bible, the Bible quotes the Bible. Here you see a Peter quoting Paul. The New Testament quotes the New Testament. You see Peter calls Paul scripture and he parallels Paul's pen to the pen of the Hebrew Bible as the rest of the scripture. Uh, the word writing is the Greek word graphe. Graphe occurs 51 times in the New Testament. And every time it refers to the Hebrew Bible, the so-called Old Testament or First Testament, not to any other writings except in this instance where graphe is used to say, hey, Paul, by the way, he's graphe, if you didn't know. This brings us on your outline to the character of authorship. The Bible as a whole is from God. Peter says Paul is writing from God. Isaiah is writing from God. The, the whole of the Bible is from God. There's not parts of it that are more God and Uh, Parts that are less God or whatever the Bible is fully from God yet at the same extent as you see in the parentheses here It is it is also fully human It is fully human and fully divine much like Jesus He's fully God and fully man the eternal son the one person of the son who took on a human nature He's fully God and fully man and for people who don't understand that in particular skeptics of the Bible They are not going to understand certain things about Jesus. Well, if Jesus is God, you know, why, why, why does he pray to the Father? Well, because there's one God who's Father, Son, and Spirit, and the Son can talk to the Father, and that's not a problem. Well, what, but, and, he's, and he's a human, and so as a human, he's, he's praying. That's not a problem. Well, if Jesus is God, why is he sleeping? Well, because humans sleep, and he's a human too, you see. And this isn't a problem. So, too, you need to understand that fundamentally, this book is a product of man and a product of God. Since the Scripture was written by men, we say the Scripture is human. However, it is not merely human, it is also divine, fully divine and fully human. This is what happens when God uses men to do something that He wants, by the way. Uh, God works through men, and so you can say this was written by men, but it's also written by God. Uh, Exactly how this happens isn't a mystery. The Bible explains it to us, that is, the divine and human character of the Bible, and the word that the Bible uses to describe this to us is the word inspiration. Uh, Inspiration. The English word inspiration in its theological usage is derived from the Latin Bible, known as the Vulgate, in which the verb inspiro is used based on 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. And let me put that in front of you. The word inspiro is used in the Latin Bible in 2 Timothy 3, 16. And also in 2 Peter 1, verse 21 in the Latin Bible, the Vulgate. The word inspiration is used to translate the more ancient Greek text, and the word theos penustos. Theos is the Greek word for God. Penustos is the word for breathe. And so the Bible is a product that is breathed out by God, quite literally. Theos penustos. And so it's not a mystery how we have a book that comes from men and God, because the Bible explains it's theos penustos, it's inspired. Dr. Charles Ryrie, noted theologian, explains that inspiration is God's superintendence of the human authors so that using their individual personalities they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs Uh, an autograph as you think about a signature or whatever is the the original of course the bible's been translated and passed down to us uh, through the sands of time and we have reason to trust those translations and manuscripts and Sign up for our Bibliology course, you can learn more about that. But suffice it to say, these original authors, when they are writing, that writing is theos penusos, inspired. And we specify that it is the writing not the authors themselves. So it's not like we've got Peter in front of us. It's not like Peter's like, I'm inspired, I'm about to write something. You know, I feel inspired, I'm going to write. Peter isn't the one who is inspired, rather it is the graphe, the writing itself that is inspired. So we have a text in front of us that is from God. We have a text uh, in front of us that comes through men. As a result, you can read Peter, you can read Paul, you can read Isaiah. They have different literary styles, different vocabularies, different flavor, different zest because they're humans and so God chose them specifically using their personality and writing styles to communicate what he wanted to communicate. Fully God and fully man without error. Because it is divine, it is alive and it gives life. Because it is human, we can understand it and and appreciate it as a human document. This text, uh, this this Bible, written by humans to humans, and so it has that human element, and, and it's open then for us to understand. We don't need a spiritual guru to tell us what it means. We don't need a pope to interpret it or a church to interpret it for us. It is a book that is written by humans for humans. The average Joe can read it and explain it. Albeit, as Peter said, as we saw uh, just a moment ago, he said, hey, some of Paul's writings are a little hard to understand. He's an apostle. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. He's an apostle. Like, hey, yeah, Paul. Paul's deep, man. Paul's deep. But guess what? Both of you guys are writing inspired text. Average Joes can read that text. We can dig in. It might be hard. He says the untaught are going to distort it and miss it. So the key is that you're being taught so that you learn this book. And you don't have to depend on a teacher to teach you... but you're being equipped so that you can feast upon the Word of God yourself. Now, would you please move from 2 Peter? You've got to go to the left and find your way into the book of Acts. This is a book in the Bible that gives us the history of the church... and I need you to find your way to the 8th chapter in the book of Acts. As you turn to the 8th chapter in the book of Acts... this is the beginning origins account of where the Apostle Paul comes from. A historical figure known as Shahuah. Ha-Tarsi, Saul of Tarsus, who then uh, becomes the Apostle Paul. Same guy, just, uh, just a, 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 you know, different names. We all have sort of nicknames and whatnot. We meet someone else also in Acts 8. It is a guy named Philip. And he's a guy who is going to, as we'll see in the account, read Scripture and explain Scripture. And we'll see this next point on the outline, the common sense of context and genre. The Bible is written by humans, for humans, for you to understand. The Bible is perspicuous. The word perspicuous perspicuous means it's understandable you 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 don't need some other mediary to explain it to you this text was written for you to be understood in the same way that you when you send an email to someone you 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 expect them to understand it because the point of communication is understanding so jump into verse 25 of Acts chapter 8 Acts chapter 8 verse 25 again we're going to meet Philip we're going to see Philip reading Scripture and explaining Scripture. So when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, Acts 8.25, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and he went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning and sitting in the chariot and they were reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the Spirit said to Philip, go join the chariot. Philip ran up. He heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and he said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. He hears the scripture. He comes. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Why? Because the point is for you to understand. But key for your understanding is to understand some context and understand the genre. And You know, what what, what book is he reading? Well, he's reading Isaiah. What genre is that? Well, that's prophecy. So Philip begins to understand this and Philip begins to explain this. Look at verse 32. Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading said this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. This is the section of, of the prophet Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Philip knows his Bible well enough to know the context and know what's going on in the passage. What was that? I don't know. Um, And this uh, serves to make a point about context and genre. Context and genre are indispensable things when we're reading the Bible. As I said, the Bible is a library. You got 66 books in here. But these books take on different literary styles, different genres. And that's what a genre is. A genre is just a literary category. So we have uh, poetry sections in the Bible historical narratives in the Bible prophecies in the Bible letters inside of the Bible uh, uh, Apocalyptic things inside of the Bible and you need to understand those genres and and know when you're reading something If you're reading a poem you read a poem a particular way that's different than when you're reading a narrative And just because it's poetry doesn't mean that you wouldn't it, it doesn't communicate truth any more than in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's a poem, but it's also historic it's also revealing something real. Now, uh, he understands this, Philip does, and he hears a, a section that's prophecy. In prophecy, foretells and foretells, and he's in a section that's foretelling a particular figure who's going to come, who's going to be the servant of, of, of Israel, who's going to be this Messiah figure, and of course that figure had come. That was Jesus of Nazareth, but this official hadn't, hadn't heard that. He hadn't heard that news. They don't have Twitter and Internet and those kinds of things how we find out the news today. And so news spread by word of mouth. And so here they are and he brings the message. As you continue reading in Acts chapter 8, you'll see that as Philip unpacks the passage, look at verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the Scripture he preached Jesus to him. And we see this man's life is changed as a result of this. This brings us from common sense and context and genre to the next point on your outline, the contrition of the human heart and the need of the Spirit. When you're encountering the meaning of the text of Scripture, because it is alive, it is going to draw you in contrition. We read in Psalm 51, verse 17, that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Bible has has a way of drawing you in and changing your life just as this court official was changed as he heard the meaning of the text. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let me put this in front of you. If you look up here, verse 14, that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians is letting us know on your own you cannot understand this. You need the Spirit. But this book is breathed out, theos penustos, by the Spirit of God. Inspiration comes by the Spirit to give us the text. And the Spirit doesn't leave you there. He actually takes the text and animates it so that you can have the mind of Christ, so that you can see the text, so that the text can become alive in your chest, in your gut, and breathe life to you and change you, just like this court official. You have Acts in front of you. uh, finish just kind of looking a little bit here at Acts 8. We saw the work of the Spirit and leading Philip to the Ethiopian official. We see his life being changed. Now contrast it with the chapter before, Acts chapter 7. Look back at Acts chapter 7. We're going to see a contrast here. This isn't Philip, it's Stephen. Look at verse 51 of chapter 7. This is Stephen speaking to a crowd of people who've been hearing the word. Acts seven fifty-one. You men are stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised in your heart, and your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You were doing just as your fathers did, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute. They killed those who previously announced the coming of the Righteous One, whose betrayers and murderers you you have now become. You have received the law as ordained by the angels and didn't keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Notice how the text juxtaposes Stephen who was of the Spirit and this particular group of people who were resisting the Spirit. Notice how the text is implicating them for not understanding the prophets. That is the Scripture. Uh, Whereas in the next chapter you have someone who is understanding the prophets. That is the work of the Spirit. It is not the work of the official or the, or the eloquence of Philip's teaching. It is the work of the Spirit. And the point here on the outline, and as you're thinking about, you know, just an overview of the Bible, you, an overview of the Bible isn't going to give you the Bible. You need God to be working through the Bible, okay? You, you need God to be opening your eyes. And, and, and that's why we pray before we come to the Feast of Scripture. and We say, Lord, have your way with us. So more than understanding the overview today in this look at the book Highway 20, understand your need for the Spirit to open the text of Scripture. We move from our need, number one, the biblical text, number two, to number three on your outline, the biblical literature. As already said a few times now, this is a collection of 66 different documents, all of them inspired by God. They're gathered together in two Testaments broadly, Old and New, First and Second. And as you read through them, you've got to understand how it all fits together. So. Moving really quickly, let me give you an outline of how these texts fit together in terms of the English ordering of them. Understand, in the ancient world, some of the ordering was a little bit different. We're dealing with all the same books, but it's important for you to understand the order in which we have them. As you open up the Bible, the first chunk that you see, we move from the book of Genesis through the book of Esther. And here you have the promise of Israel. The Hebrew Bible, or Old Testament, opens with the account of creation in the universe. And it closes about 400 years before the coming of Jesus the Christ. Now the flow of history from the Old Testament moves around the history of Israel, God's promised people. And the beginnings of the promised people begin with the historical figure, Abraham. Uh, God promises to Abraham a covenant. We're going to look at that in a moment. And that covenant, that promise, passes through Abraham's seed to Isaac, to Jacob, to the patriarchs, the fathers of the nation of Israel. The details of this history are explained in this section of Genesis through Esther. The first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then you move into the history from Joshua through Esther, and there's 12 books in there. As you get to the end of that, you get the beginnings of of this promise to God's people, Israel. And then at at the close of this section, you move into the poetic worship of Israel. Here we step into uh, uh, Job through Song of Solomon. Uh, throughout uh, history, God has been fashioning a people for Himself who will love and obey Him, who will express and, and, and feast upon in their corporate worship His, his Word and, and praise Him and respond to Him. So the poetic section of the Bible is, is wonderful. It's a motive and, and there's wisdom sections in there. There's, we, we read from the Psalms today as we began our, our public reading of Scripture. So it's, this is the worship book of the ancient world this is the spotify list if you will the itunes list if you will of their songs and their worship and their prayer we move from the promise of israel through the poetic section from job through song of solomon through the prophets of israel which takes you from isaiah through malachi Uh, the the prophets themselves in our english bible are split by what we call the major prophets and the minor prophets the major prophets it's not like they're the heavy hitters. I made it to the major leagues and then you got the minor leagues. Majors, we just call them major because they're, they're bigger. Isaiah is just bigger than Hosea. Okay, So you've got these five books that are the majors, Isaiah through Daniel. And then you have these 12 books that are a little bit smaller, Hosea through Malachi. The prophets have an important role in the covenant and the promise that God gave to Abraham. They are covenant enforcers and covenant reminders and they keep pointing the people back to God. I said earlier that prophets foretell and forthtell. They forthtell the covenant. They forthtell the revelation of God. They forthtell, hey, what did the prophets before say? What did Moses say? What does the, the Torah say? And they remind the people of the word forthtelling, but then they also foretell a story of the future of things that are going to happen for the people of God. And central in that message is the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, and, and, and we'll talk more about that. So we move from the prophets of Israel and then into the section of the Christ, the Passion of Israel's Messiah, which takes us into the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The New Testament begins after the prophets, and in many ways it's very helpful for you to think about the four Gospels as actually belonging to the Old Testament or overlapping with the Old Testament. John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet. He has come in the same tradition as, as Isaiah and Daniel and Malachi. And he comes proclaiming, rolling out the red carpet for the Messiah. Messiah, by the way, is a synonym for Christ. Christos in the Greek, Mashiach in the Hebrew, where we get Mashiach, Messiah, Christos, Christ. These are interchangeably, understand that. Uh, Many people today ignorantly think that Christ is somehow Jesus' last name. Matt Jones, Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. It is a title. And it's a title that comes from the prophets of this figure that was going to come and suffer for the people and redeem them. You should still be in the book of Acts, uh, if you have your Bibles open, if you are pacing with me. would you go to the first chapter in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. So the, the four gospel accounts, they overlap with the Hebrew Bible. They are showing you the promises being fulfilled. And then the book of Acts takes you into a different section, which we will now get into on your outline, the parentheses of the Church of the Messiah. Now the Messiah, after he has fulfilled the suffering that was promised, he he dies on a cross for the sins of his people. You say, why would you die? Why why does someone have to die for us? Well, if you're following the storyline of the Bible, you you know, because we've sinned against God, and sin ushers in death, and and we all die, 10 out of 10 people die, and that's the consequence of sin against God. But behold, there's one who comes and he dies in our place. And then he rises up, showing, I've died in your place. I've made the payment for you. You owed a debt that you could not pay. This this historical figure, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all these promises... ...more than a fulfillment of prophecy and a man in history, he's God of eternity, God the Son in the flesh. I died and I paid a debt for you, a debt that you owed that you could not pay. He, on the other hand, did not owe anything. He died in our place and he gave that gift. He rises up from the dead, he ascends into heaven... ...and then he institutes this thing called the church. These men that he had been discipling, he sends them out into the world in this kind of parenthetical age as we await His return. I ask you to turn to the book of Acts in the first chapter. Draw your eyes at verse 1. The first account that I composed, Theophilus, about Jesus... and what He began to do and teach. Until the day when He was taken up to heaven... and He he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. To these He presented Himself alive from His suffering, many convincing proofs... appearing to them for a period over forty days... and speaking thanks concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what was promised from the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water. John the baptist, baptizer, who I said is sort you know, you could see him as the last prophet of the Old Testament. He baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So then when, he, when they were together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Again, look at the first point under biblical literature, the promise to Israel. A promise to Israel of the promised land and the promised people and a a kingdom. Are you going to do that now? Is that going to happen now? And he said to them, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times and the epochs that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He didn't say, it's done. I already did that. The kingdom's here. No, he says, no, I'm not going to do that right now. Let me tell you what I am going to do, verse 8, but you. We'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Verse 9, He said these things and He was lifted up. This is the ascension. A cloud received Him out of their sight. So here you see the story, the promise of Israel is, is continuing. And the disciples want to know, is that going to happen now? And He says, no, that's not going to happen now. That's later. It's a time that has been fixed, He says, by the Father. That's later. And hence we call this a parenthesis. Because the promise, is it's still hanging, it's still going to come, it's, it's going to take place. And as you read from the book of Acts, and you finish the book of Acts, you get the history of the church, and then you get the letters of the church, and the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, is a book of prophecy talking about the return of Christ. Okay, so that's the 66 books moving from Genesis to Revelation and how they all fit together. And they all fit together in a unified, next point on your outline, point four, a biblical story. So it's important to know the story. The story begins, as you see on your outline, with a glorious triune God who sovereignly creates. Since this is God's story, it, it, it doesn't begin, as do all other stories, with uh, you know, a hidden God whom people are seeking around and trying to find. No, it begins with a revealing God, a creating God, a, a loving God. And He creates and He pours His love out. But this is a story of unrequited love. Next point on your outline. The creation rebels. The creation falls. The creation is judged. So the first chapter is about the the, the love of this sovereign triune God. And the second chapter in the story is a story of rebellion and fall and judgment. You move from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of the Bible. That's a story of just this vicious cycle of us making a mess of things. However... However, if you're following the storyline and you're placing things together, the next point on your outline when you open it up there, you'll see at the top, it's giving you a story of the Father God who graciously elects a covenant community for Himself. So in the midst of the mess, God isn't waiting on us to come to our senses. He has chosen to use the language of Scripture before the foundations of the world a people for Himself. And that begins with that man, Abram, who I was talking about earlier in Isaac and Jacob. And, and that gets you into this covenant framework that you have on the inside of your bulletin. You have this diagram of, of the promise that is given to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, it's repeated a few times in Genesis as well, and other places in the Hebrew Bible, you have the Abrahamic covenant. Covenant means promise. God promises to Abram that He's going to give him a land and a seed and a blessing. A land that is a place, a seed that is a progeny, a, a blessing that is prosperity. He's going to bring them to a place. He's going to give them progeny, children and children's children. He's, he's going to make them prosper. They'll be a blessing not just for themselves but for the nations of the world because sin has rippled through the creation in all nations and God is going to use this promise to bring the nations to Himself. There are subsequent covenants that come. A land covenant uh, that we read about in Deuteronomy 30 that emphasizes that place, the land. The Davidic covenant that comes to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 an emphasis that is placed on the seed, the progeny of Abram, and then David, and God promises to David that you will have a descendant who will reign on the throne, who will be king, not only of Israel, but of the nations of the world, and that throne will last forever. This is why when you step into the Gospel accounts, they labor, particularly Matthew and Luke, to say Jesus is in the line of David, He's in the line of Abraham. He's the fulfillment of these things. They also labor, specifically Luke does, to say he's not only in the line of David and Abraham, he's in the line of Adam. He's not just the Messiah of Israel. He's in the line of Adam. He's the Savior of all nations. We read in the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, he speaks of a new covenant that is to come that emphasizes that aspect of blessing and prosperity. And all of this fits together, as you have on the inside of your outline, with the patriarchs and the promised people. So as you're reading in in the opening sections of the Torah, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you you follow this storyline of of the people given a promise, of the people brought into dark places, specifically slavery in Egypt, of God who is an abolitionist, who liberates them, who rescues them and uses the prophet Moses and brings revelation to them and brings them to that place. They move through the wilderness, they come to the place of the promised land, You have the era of the Judges, which is an era that lasts 350 years. We recently were studying Samuel, and we looked at that era of transition from the Judges to the kings. You see that on your outline, the United Kingdom with Saul and David and Solomon. That lasts about 110 years. And then we step into the divided kingdom between Israel and Judah, north and south, that goes on for 350 years. Thereafter, you have the exile. You think about the prophet Daniel and... Nebuchadnezzar and being taken into exile in Babylon. That lasts for about 70 years in fulfillment of prophecy. The prophets predicted this timeline and it happens according to plan. And then the people return to the land as you get to the end of the Hebrew Bible. And they begin rebuilding Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And this goes for about 140 years and then you step into a time of silence. Everything is quiet. And we've been studying the post-exilic texts, if you want to go back online and see those. Everything ends in silence. Uh, We we receive really what we deserve. God gives us silent treatment because He had been revealing. He had been revealing. He had been loving. And it was being rejected. And so things go silent. And then John the Baptist comes and breaks the silence. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world with soteriological and eschatological overtones. He uplifts the image of of the Lamb. It's eschatological because the the Jewish prophets predicted a Lamb who would come and overthrow the kingdoms of the earth. It's soteriological because the Lamb is a picture of sacrifice. And so then you step into this New Testament era in his storyline where, next point on the outline, the Son comes as the Gospel of God to redeem by the Spirit. The word gospel means uh, good news. Angelion. U means good. Angelion, angelos, is a word for messenger or news. It, it is good news. And it's good because of the bad news that we've rebelled against the loving Creator who gave us life and therefore we face death. And In addition to death, we have disease and dysfunction. The creation's a hot mess. But, but here we have the good news that that bad news is being overthrown and that God's in control of it. And that God hasn't sent a third party to deal with it. He has come Himself. And so as you step into the New Testament, you hear phrases like, to quote Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come. The story was in God's control. The Messiah comes at the perfect time. He's fulfilling all things. And so you read those accounts as you move from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John through Acts. We've seen some samples from those. You see the Son coming, fulfilling everything and then you see him ascending, you see him going, hey, when's the Israel, when's the covenant thing, when's that going to happen? Don't worry. That time, that epoch is fixed. It's going to happen. Well, then then what do we do? You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. You're going to go to the ends of the earth, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and you're going to share that the King has come because God is patient and loving. He's not ready to close the story yet, because he's still building his people who will belong to him in covenant. Wow. So he's still saving. He's still on the move. Yeah, absolutely. That's why he hasn't come back yet. But behold, he will come. So as you get to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we see the prophecy of the Son returning. He returns with his kingdom to consummate the ages. Specifically, as you get in the final chapters of the book, it opens with letters to churches in Asia Minor, It moves from chapter 6 through chapter 19 of an era of judgment as, as God judges the earth. And then in chapter 20, 21 to the end, you see the king returning, establishing his kingdom, and he does everything that was promised to Abram in the place with the progeny, brings prosperity. He judges evil. He wipes all of humanity's tears and guilt and shame away. And then he brings his people and he renews and restores and brings in a new heavens and new earth. When you read the book of Revelation and you get to the end of the story, you have to understand that the end of the story is mirroring the beginning of the story. Let me put this in front of you so you can see if you look up here. Genesis 1 through 3 you see on one side. Revelation 20 through 22 you see on the other side. There's a parallel. Genesis opens with creation. In the beginning God created. Revelation closes with a new creation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Genesis opens with that promise. uh, uh, of, of judgment and the multiplication of sorrow. Revelation closes that there will be no more sorrow. It will be wiped away. Genesis opens with this rejection of God's love and you see a curse that comes to the creation. But then Revelation closes and says in chapter 22, verse 3, there will be no more curse. Revelation is, is mirroring. It's reversing. All things are being restored. In Revelation 22, 5, man's dominion is restored to the rule of a, of a new man, Christ. Man's dominion was broken in Genesis chapter 3. When God created humanity, He placed them in paradise and He said, this is for you, you take care of this, you have dominion over this. You, I'm designating authority to you, you're made in my image. And humanity compromises that and loses that. The first Adam falls. Behold the second Adam, the Christ, who exercises full dominion as the story closes. We see paradise lost in Genesis 3. We see paradise regained in Revelation 21:25. You read of the tree of life in Genesis chapter 3. Again, we see as the book closes, the tree of life is reinstated in Christ, Revelation 22:14. In Genesis, we're driven from God's presence. In Revelation 22-4, we see His face. The way the story opens, the mess that comes, at the end of the story, it is all fulfilled. And as you're reading the story you know, and you're moving through it, like when you're on the road with your parents and you're a little kid or whatever, you go, are we there yet? 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 You'll, you'll find yourself. as You're in Leviticus. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? But the question that we need to understand is, where are we, what's there? So you need to understand point five in your outline, the center of the story, and the center is Christ. So as you move from Genesis... In the first part of the story, uh, you know you're going, "Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are, are are we there yet?" And then the sun comes, and you say, "Oh yeah, we're there. Oh yeah, we're there." But the fact of the matter is, you don't have to wait for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or the New Testament to see the sun. When you're reading the Bible, the sun is all over the place. We talk about the Bible being Christocentric. By Christocentric, we mean Christ is the center about whom all things are grouped and all things point to, Christ. He is the central object of the Scripture. He's central in our worship. Any approach to reading the Bible that deviates from that and obscures this reality of the Christocentrism of the Bible, you're going to miss what God is revealing in Christ. So as you're reading the Bible and you're saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Just stop and say, what is this telling me about Christ? What is this teaching me about Christ? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, when he speaks of Christ, he speaks of Christ and Yahweh and God interchangeably. We must not put Christ to the test as some of the fathers did in the wilderness when they were destroyed. You see, he's quoting from the Exodus account. Christ is in Exodus. Christ is all over the place. Remember when we were in, uh, when we were in, uh, in, in Acts with, with Philip. Go back to it. Since hopefully you still have Acts in front of you, go back to Acts chapter 8. Philip ran up, verse 30, Acts 8:30. He's reading Isaiah, and he says, "Do you know who Isaiah is talking about?" And then verse 35, Philip opened his mouth, beginning from the scripture. Isaiah, he preached Christ to him. Isaiah is about Christ. Genesis is about Christ. Exodus is about Christ. Leviticus is about Christ. It's all about Christ. Everything's pointed at Christ. You have a diagram on the inside of your bulletin of the Bible at a glance, at a glance. You see the the cross in the center there. As you're reading the text of Scripture, and even as we corporately worship, you come here today to hear about Christ. Because you did not get through this past week without seeing your need of Him. None of us made it through last week unscathed by sin. You all did things in the week that, why did I do that? We all have our guilt and our shame. We all fall short and we keep falling short. And so when we gather on Sunday, the day that he was risen, we need to be reminded, dear traveler in this earth, he has come for you. And your guilt and shame can be lifted today in him. And as you read your word, he keeps bringing you back to that. And as you gather in corporate worship, the job of any minister is to keep pointing you to him, pointing you to him, see Christ, see your need of him, and see that he can meet Every need in you, if you would come to Him. As you're reading through the Bible, if you do the read through the Bible in a year, you know, you start in the old, and you could be reading, going, I don't, I don't see how this is pointing to Him. Well, the two Testaments, have you have, as you have inside of your bulletin there, for you to keep and use so you don't have to frantically write the PowerPoint down. But in the Old Testament, you see the anticipation of Christ. In the New Testament, you see His realization. In the old, He is coming. In the new, He has arrived. In the old, He's prophesied. In the new, He's present. In the old, He's contained. In the new, he's explained. In the old, he's unfolded. In the new, he's unfolded. In the old, in the shadows. But look for the shadows. And in the new, you see the substance. In the old, you read typology of him. And in the new, you see the truth of those types fulfilled in him. In the various genres of the Bible, which we talked about, there's different literary categories of the Bible. There's poems. There's historical narratives. There's prophecies. All of them are pointed to him. You have this on the inside of your bulletin as well. The law gives you a downward look, right? The the history of the Old Testament gives you an outward look. The poetry gives you an upward look. It draws you to see God. It draws you in worship of Him. The prophecy gives you a forward look. So the law gives you a downward look. The law comes and 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 it says, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this. And you go, I don't do the do's and I certainly do the don'ts. What is that teaching me? It teaches you that you need forgiveness. The point of the law isn't that God's some mean ogre in heaven, like, just, yeah, I love pointing out when you do wrong. This isn't some overbearing, unloving father who just can't wait to tell you how you messed it up. This is a loving father who brings the law so that you know you need salvation. The law has a downward look, and it condemns us, but then that gives us the foundation in Christ, you, you need Him. The history gives you this outward look of His people, which prepares you for the coming seed, its preparation for Christ. The poetry points you up to God, which points us up in our aspiration of Christ. The prophecy looks forward to the coming of Christ, which draws us in expectation of His return. The Gospels give us a, a downward look of the manifestation of Christ, where we go He's come down from the heavens for us. The book of Acts is a book of history, and so it also looks out, and it looks out as the church goes in this parentheses to spread the propagation of Christ. The epistles, those letters that follow the book of Acts, give us an upward look just like the poetry of the Hebrew Bible because it is applying Christ and drawing us in worship of Him. Our book of prophecy in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, like the prophecy of the Hebrew Bible, gives us a forward look of consummation in Christ. Acts chapter 8 in front of you, you see Christ preached from the Hebrew Bible. As a result, this man's life is changed. In the next three six uh, uh, verses there in the text, we see him repenting. We see him being baptized. We see the work of the Spirit. We see our need for God to open our eyes to see these things, and we see that he is good to do just that, to open our minds. Now, Acts was written by Luke, so if I could get you to turn back to the left into the Gospel of Luke, you've got to jump over John to get to Luke. Find your way to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, quickly, verse 44. Luke 24, verse 44. This is Jesus with the disciples before the ascension. Jesus with the disciples before the ascension. Now Jesus said to them, verse 44, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the Tanakh, that's the Hebrew Scriptures, the First Testament, the Old Testament, Jesus says, It's all about me. They go, What? He goes, Yeah, it's all about me. And I know you can't see it. So verse 20 verse 45. Then he opened their minds, he unlocks their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending you to bring forth the promise of the Father upon you, that you are to stay into the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So we see, again, what we saw in Acts, this parenthetical age that he's sending them out in. And all of that requires for you, if you want to see how everything fits together, you've got to have this Highway 20, look at the book, bird's eye view, and I've Giving you that from Genesis to Revelation. And I'm going to close by giving you these key themes. So as you're reading through, you're going to see some key themes coming alive. The backside of your bulletin. You're going to read about the holy character, the loving triune God who joyfully reigns over his creation. Even in darkness, even in exile, even in rebellion, he joyfully reigns over his creation. Patient and loving. We see a second theme that's woven through this whole book. It is the righteous condemnation of sin and disobedience. So the, the prophets, as they foretell the law, the law looking down on us, it shows us our need. The historical narratives, you read of these characters. Recently we studied David and they just, they fall, they make a mess. Even the best among them, they make a mess. And there we see sin and disobedience. A third theme that we see is the gracious promise and blessing of God's covenant community. So you see on your outline, the holy character of the loving triune God, the righteous condemnation of sin disobedience, thirdly, the gracious promise and blessing of God's covenant. As we're looking at these themes, let me pause and, and, and go back and show you what we don't see in terms of themes. The theme of the Bible is not your best life now. The theme of the Bible is not finding your purpose. The theme of the Bible is not fulfilling your destiny. The theme of the Bible is not making your church bigger. The theme of the Bible is not making your dreams come true. The theme of the Bible is not you. It's not about you. And that should be liberating. Because we live in a world where we make everything about us. And we put ourselves in the center of it. But the Bible is putting God in the center. His holy character. The triune God joyfully reigning. The God who loves us, but we've rebelled against Him. And there's condemnation of sin and disobedience. However, there's, there's thirdly here, you see, the gracious promise and blessing of God's covenant community. God's God's making a people for Himself. And you, Delray Church, you're a part of that. You're part of His promises. You've been swept into this. Next, that salvation of sinners through judgment for the glory of God. You see God judging sin as, as you're reading the Bible and you see Him moving through judgment and you see Him lifting ju- judgment in the work of the Son. The Gospel of Jesus is the only satisfying sacrifice of sin. In a moment, we're going to come to the community table where we picture that. The community table is central in our worship. The point of the sermon is actually to bring us to the communion table so that when we come, we have context. And when we come, we have a picture before us of exactly what we're doing. Don't rush through the elements. Don't drink the cup and pop the bread in your mouth and, and go on. You, you, you've been told what these things mean, and so as you drink and as you eat, you're reminded of the one whose blood was shed for us, of the one whose body was broken for us, of the one who has come to save us and also to disciple us. This brings us to the theme of discipleship that we see. The Lord is making disciples. He's, he's, not, he's not just making believers. He's making disciples. We saw in John 17 in the beginning of our public reading of Scripture right? That, that Jesus says, I've accomplished what you've given me to accomplish. Keep in mind that John 17 comes before the cross. I thought the cross is what you're going to accomplish. Oh, to be sure it is. But there's another work, a work of discipleship. God isn't just raising up believers. He's raising up disciples, students. And not just mere students, but family members. He's making them family. He's, he's sweeping them in. We're in a parenthesis. And so as we read the scripture, we're going to see the theme of kingdom coming alive. There's a literal kingdom that will come and renew all things. In fact, our communion table, it not only looks back in remembering Christ, it looks future in proclaiming Him who will come. It is a meal that celebrates what has happened and what will happen. Final themes before we close the message. The magnificent God who is the supreme treasure of all things. He's the world's greatest treasure. And in salvation you found him. He is to be enjoyed. His word is to be enjoyed. He is to be treasured. His word is to be treasured. This book treasured above all books. We are in an anti-reading culture, so uh, this book to be treasured above all Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and, you know, to be treasured above all messaging, this book. The chief end of humanity is joyfully worshiping him. So the book aims not just to give you information about him, but to transform you and to usher you into worship. Finally, the book aims to propel us on mission, so the last theme I want you to see in terms of the overview of the Bible is the Missio Dei, the mission of God. God is redeeming us, and He's inviting us to participate in what He is doing. He's saving people, and He has ordained for you to play a role in that through the proclamation of His Gospel. As you proclaim the message, what He has ordained before the foundations of the world, Paul says He's prepared good works for you in advance to walk in them. What He has prepared He will unfold, and He'll do so by His Spirit, to open eyes, to see, and ears, to hear, and lives to be changed. Look around the room, if you know anything about these people in this room, look at this ragtag group that we have here. You know each other's stories. You, 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 you know where your brothers and sisters have been. If you don't, you know, hang out, get to know us. Say, so, man, we wouldn't be friends. Yeah, we, we wouldn't even know each other. But the Lord saved us and He brought us together and He made us a family. And He pours out His Spirit on us so that we can participate in this work that He is doing. And now He calls us to His table. A table is something that a family shares. This is our table, Delray Church. We share this, but we share it by union with Christ and by the Spirit who's reconciled us to the Father. As you come to the table, be reminded of these rich things. As you come to the Scriptures, hopefully you make an effort this year. If you don't, Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing or whatever, but... Feast on the Word and take this insert that's been given to you and prepared for you Tuck it in your Bible and and revisit it so that you keep learning these themes and thinking about these genres and thinking about how it all points to Christ Take the read through the Bible schedule and just just put them together and and tuck it in and and devour the word dig into the word But I don't want you reading through the word for the sake of getting through so that you can say I've read the Bible I meet people all the time that say I've read the Bible and I go tell me what tell me what it's about or your skeptic friends, you know, you go, oh, you know, I read the Bible, I've read, I've read it, I don't need it, I've read it, and that's when I, I like to go, oh, really? What's Second Samuel about? Well, you know, what's uh, what's uh, what's Third Samuel about? Well, uh, yeah, there's not even Third Samuel, so got you, you know. Maybe people say, oh, I've read it, or I've, yeah, no, 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 that the goal isn't just to read through the Bible. The goal, the goal is to know the God of the Bible and to be changed by Him to be loved by Him, to be reconciled to Him. Let's come to the table. Let's picture Him. Let's, let's sing to Him. But before we do, let's pray. Oh, Father, we've taken a big bird's eye view of the revelation that You have given to us with Your Son in the center. And I pray that Your Spirit would grab this humble overview, Lord, and use it to equip us in this parenthetical age. The King has come. The King will return. The kingdom postponed, the kingdom inaugurated. Oh Lord, may your church be found faithful in this age. May we be found faithful. As we come to the table, Lord, we need to be reminded that our sins are forgiven in your Son. All guilt and shame that we have carried into this room from the week, Lord, I pray that you would lift. All anxieties and burdens and stresses, I pray that you would lift. Lord, all un, unwavering and tossing to and fro, I, I pray that You would anchor all, all questions, Lord, all, all doubts, all fears. I, I pray that in, in Your Word and by Your Spirit here today, You would fill us with hope and holiness, Lord. Fill us with Your Spirit afresh today. I pray, receive these songs of worship as our brother leads us And as we come to the table, Lord, together as a family, bless us. In the name of Jesus, amen.